the people of Atkin, Massachusetts, knew that the devil walked among them. How else could they explain how routine death was? Their only bulwark against oblivion was the small stone chapel that had been erected in the center of town. It was there that the congregation met every Sunday for service, and it was there that the local farmers established some sense of community, and it was there that the people of Atkin went to escape the bitter cold. Stone church walls kept out the elements better than rickety log cabins, and everyone in Acton knew to risk staying away from the church when the winter storms rolled in was certain death. Everyone except for Hunter Solomon. A tall, hairy, hawkish man, Hunter lived on the outskirts of Atkin in a cramped, decaying cabin. Few spoke to him, and the only person who regularly contacted him was old Nan, a kindly old woman known and loved for her treatment of children. Though... Many were suspicious of Hunter, none dared accuse him directly of any wrongdoing, due entirely to his immense hunting skills. Every week, Hunter would stride into town to leave a freshly slaughtered deer on the steps of the church for any hungry man or woman. No man in their right mind went into the woods around Acton alone. Too many had disappeared. When the grandparents of the current generation of settlers had first arrived... The land that became Acton was completely abandoned. There were no natives and no apparent trails, despite the rich farmland. Those original settlers had been a hardy crew and hacked a life out of the oppressive woods, despite the dangers posed by the wolf pack that lived in the shadow of Acton. This current generation had learned fear from their forebears, and so, whenever fresh meat was needed... A hunting party was formed to ensure that no man had to go into the woods and brave the wolves alone. Hunter Solomon went into the woods alone. Rumors swirled among the townspeople that Hunter had sold his soul so that he could safely walk among the wolves. Some said that when Hunter had been a young man, he and his father had gone into the woods on a hunting trip where they had been attacked by the pack. Days later, the people of Acton said Hunter had emerged from the woods, limping and trying his best to hold his scalp to his head. Old Man Solomon was never seen again. That hunting trip left Hunter silent and covered in scars. No one could fight off wolves, the town people said. The devil must have protected his servant. Few remembered the sociable young man Hunter had been before this trip, but all knew the silent, reclusive hermit who had returned. It didn't take much for the people of Atkin to turn on Hunter. When Reverend McGarvey passed away during the winter of 1701, the people of Acton desperately sent out requests for a new minister. When spring arrived, so did Reverend O'Brien, a red-headed fire-and-brimstone preacher who inspired a new level of devotion among the frontier faithful. With him was his eight-year-old daughter, a small wild girl who shared his red hair. Her name was Lucy. No one in town knew for certain when Lucy and Hunter first met. All they knew was that Lucy adored Hunter. 
Whenever Hunter would stride into town, bringing fresh food from his hunt, Lucy would run out to greet him. Hunter always brought something for her, an interesting leaf, a small carving, a poorly made doll. Soon other children started running out with Lucy to greet Hunter. Hunter always had toys for the children, and they soon came to adore Actkins' hermit, almost as much as they adored Old Nan and her stories. Some saw this as a sign that Hunter was, at least partially, a decent man. Others, including Reverend O'Brien, knew that Satan-worshipping Hunter was corrupting his daughter and the other town children. Reverend O'Brien took no small amount of pleasure from his first sermon about witchcraft. The townspeople, already suspicious of Hunter Solomon, hung on to his every word. Vivid descriptions of covens and curses drove the townspeople into a fervor. Soon they began to notice every misfortune. Farmer John's cows died suddenly. Little Danny Gilman fell severely ill and died weeks later. Rachel Jones miscarried. James Sloan's wife was caught with another man and swore on the Holy Bible that an outside force had seized control of her body. The breaking point came early in the winter of 1702 when Lucy disappeared. That Sunday, Reverend O'Brien poured his heart and soul into his sermon, calling for the people of the town to drive out the devil. And all knew who he referred to. The enraged congregation loaded their muskets, lit their torches. It was time to kill Hunter Solomon. It was time to drive out the devil. When the mob reached Hunter's cabin, they found it to be abandoned. Reverend O'Brien and James Sloan led a select group of village elders into the cabin to see if there was any sign where Hunter had gone or if he was to return. They found a small cot, numerous hunting trophies, and a set of manacles chained to the wall of the cabin. The manacles were solidly built and showed signs of frequent use. Along the cuffs of the manacles were several thick, dark hairs. Reverend O'Brien proudly announced that the manacles were proof that Hunter had been summoning and enslaving demons to his will. Soon, though, the bitter cold and howls of wolves drove the mob back to their safety of Actkin and to the church. The second child to disappear was Annie Smith, daughter of Giles Smith, the town drunk. Reverend O'Brien's sermons became even more impassioned, and soon the witch hunt began. Any woman accused of being in Hunter Solomon's coven found themselves speedily tried by a council led by Reverend O'Brien and James Sloan. None of the accused were found innocent, and the degree that witchcraft had infiltrated the village caused panic. In short order, Peggy Sullivan, Lindsay Anderson, and Jane Sloan James Sloan's adulterous wife, were burned. Still, more children continued to disappear, and Reverend O'Brien led his flock in a great purge, claiming the lives of many young women in the village. The townspeople rallied behind Reverend O'Brien, the holy man they knew to be a crusader for justice. Despite their faith, the number of missing children continued. 
continued all through that long November and December. The message appeared the night after the blizzard. Though all of the townspeople had taken shelter in the church, Giles Smith was the only one who saw it. Despite the poor visibility caused by the snow flurries, Giles swore that the beast was easily the size of a horse. No one really believed him, and the following morning offered no proof of Giles Smith's claims. The heavy snow had obscured any tracks, and Reverend O'Brien was quick to dismiss the drunk's claims. That was until he saw the door of the church. Crudely carved into the door of the church were two words. I know. Reverend O'Brien turned pale and hurried to his home, stating he needed to prepare the following day's sermon. That sermon was never given. All throughout the night, the townspeople were kept awake by loud, lonely howls that sounded like they were coming from just outside the village. The next morning, as the people of Acton exited their homes in their Sunday best, they were greeted by a ghastly sight. Sprawled on the steps of the church was the mangled body of James Sloan. Reverend O'Brien was incensed and immediately called a meeting of the council. It didn't take the council long to accuse old Nan of witchcraft and conspiracy with Hunter Solomon. The remaining children looked on in horror as their storyteller was seized by the council and Reverend O'Brien sent his congregation out to gather wood for a pyre. Soon they returned, dumped their wood around the stake that old Nan was now bound to. Here, standing next to the pyre, was where Reverend O'Brien was in his element. As old Nan sobbed and begged for mercy, Reverend O'Brien hollered about evil, the devil, and the depraved acts Hunter Solomon and old Nan had been responsible for. Description of demon summoning and secret meetings in the woods with Satan drove the crowd into a screaming frenzy. A deafening snarl silenced the mob. Pacing around a house at the edge of town was the wolf. If anything, Giles Smith had underestimated the size of the beast, which was easily larger than any horse. The crowd panicked. Some fainted, some fired their muskets, some ran, and Reverend O'Brien stood, rooted in place, holding the torch he'd planned on using to ignite the pyre. The wolf charged forward, surging through the crowd directly toward Reverend O'Brien. Panicking, Reverend O'Brien dropped the torch on the pyre, turned, and ran. As the flames began to lick up the pile of dry wood toward the desperately praying old Nan, the wolf altered its course. Throwing its weight into the air, it sailed through the pyre, snapping at the stake and sending old Nan tumbling free. The wolf lay thrashing on the ground, trying its best to extinguish the fur that was now ablaze. With a desperate howl that rolled into a nearby snowbank, extinguishing its fur and ran out of town. No one could have predicted that a badly burned Hunter Solomon would knock on Father Jones's door later that night, or 
that the next morning, Farmer Jones would gather up the townsmen, kick in the door to Reverend O'Brien's house, and hang him from a tree at the edge of the forest. Fewer still could have predicted the remains of the missing children were recovered from the basement of that very house. Hunter Solomon has not been seen since, but the townspeople of Acton no longer avoid the woods. Hunters go out alone, unafraid. Children play in the places that were once forbidden to them. Every now and then, a hunter will hear a lonely howl. Every now and then, a child will find a poorly made doll, but no one goes missing. And no more rumors spread about Hunter Solomon. I don't recall falling asleep, and I'm not real sure how I got into bed, but I'm awake now. There's a very distant ringing in my ears, sort of like the aftermath of a concussive blast that makes you deaf, only this ringing seems far off inside my head. I'll stand a rough night, I suppose, although honestly I can't recall the previous evening or, or any evening that matter. <laughs> yeah, it must have been one hell of a night. I roll out of bed, my feet hit the cold, hard tile floor of my bedroom. Rubbing my hands over my face, I try to shake the cobwebs of sleep and whatever I may have drank last night out of my head. Glancing out the nearby window, I see a gloomy, overcast sky and a light rain falling on the leafless forest of trees that surround my property. Is it fall? I honestly can't remember. Oh, I swear to God, I'll never drink that much again. I've made the same hollow promise a hundred times before, I'm sure. Moving off the bed, I walk down the hall and descend the staircase that leads into the main level of the house, the top three stairs creaking under my weight as they always do. Midway down the stairs, I can see outside through the Amityville Horror-style window over the entryway that the drizzling clouds have settled in. They're likely going to be hanging around for a while. I'm not going to work today. Wait, I don't have work today, right? It's the weekend, isn't it? Shake my head vigorously and make that same hollow promise to God again. This day is going to be far worse than my night must have been. The kitchen has a digital clock, so I stumble in to check the day and time just to be sure I don't need to call in... Uh, sick. The clock says 9am. I'm late if it's a weekday. And it's Sunday. Excellent. Time to crash on the couch and do nothing. God, I'm tired. Cow just calling my name right now. I leave the kitchen, move through the archway into the living room, noticing that the hard woods are just as cold as the tiled floors upstairs. A small shiver moves up my spine, and I make a turn toward the thermostat to crank the heat up before lying down and covering up with a throw blanket hanging over the back of the couch. The worn, cold leather of the couch creaks under my weight. 
I hear the familiar click of the thermostat. The heat kicks on and I pull the blanket in tighter, close my eyes and try to fall asleep. Maybe this hangover, worst one I've ever had, and I still can't remember the party. Hell yeah. Maybe it'll be gone after good. Then a little late morning nap. And the whispers start immediately. I bolt upright on the couch, throwing the blanket aside as I do, and I scan the room. Aside from me, the living room's empty. I sneak quietly from the living room through the kitchen and peek around the corner. Silent as a church mouse. I had to have been a ninja in the past life or something. I look up the stairs and see that the bathroom light is on and the exhaust fan is definitely running. Maybe I destroyed the toilet last night and left it running to kill some of the smell before stumbling to bed, I think. But the whispering... It starts again, and it's coming from the bathroom. No time for subtlety now. So I bolt up the stairs, the top three creak as usual, and burst into the bathroom. If there's someone in here, they are about to get their ass kicked. But the bathroom's empty, and the whispering has stopped. Okay, I'm far more wrong over than I thought. I flip the bathroom wall switch to kill the lights and the fan, then realize my bed isn't far away at all. Sleep. I need sleep. I am so tired. The bed's right there in my room, dark and inviting. I'll just sleep this so often and wake up feeling much better. It's time for that nap. I lay down on the bed, sinking into the mattress like butter melting on a hot pan, pull the covers into my chin, close my eyes, and sleep. Or at least I think I went to sleep. I'm definitely awake, but I don't recall falling asleep or dreaming. The darkness has crept into the room like a cat burglar, casting shadows on the far wall that look like little demons, ready to jump out of their two-dimensional wall canvas and attack as full-blown three-dimensional horrors. It must be nighttime, because I can't see anything through the window, but I can still hear the faint pattering of the rain on the roof. I throw the blankets back, sit up and rub my face again, still tired and groggy, and hungover. I leave the demons behind me on the bedroom wall and head to the bathroom. The light is still off, so I flip it on. The light from the molded glass fixture dances all over like miniature crystal ballerinas, and the exhaust fan comes on. I sneak a peek into the toilet. No prayers offered up to the porcelain god in here, I think to myself. As I turn to the mirror to face myself and dreading the sight I will behold in this rough state, sounds from downstairs freeze me in my tracks. It's the unmistakable sound of silverware on plates. Someone's eating dinner in my house. The top three stairs creak once again as I fly down to the first floor, burst into the kitchen, throwing the door wide as I enter and head toward the dinner table by the bay window. 
There are plates here, remnants of a half-eaten meal on each of them, but whoever was here eating my food left in a hurry when they heard me coming. The hardwood floor leading to the front door sounds like a herd of elephants is holding a track meet on it. The bastards are running out the front door. As I quickly head to the entryway, I see the door close and hear the deadbolt click into place. They have a key? They must have, because they just locked the door from the outside. I peer through the stained glass window slits that are on either side of the front door, but I can't see anyone in the blackness of the rain-soaked night. Enjoy the weather, you piece of shit. The idea that someone was in my house eating my food and has a key... It disturbs me. There is clearly more than one, and while my past life ninja skills might help me fight them if they return, I don't want to pin my survivability hopes on reincarnation theory. Besides, I'm just so tired. Let the cops do their job. I grab the phone off the wall and dial 911. Nothing. I hang up and try again. Still, nothing. There's no dial tone. Nothing. Did they actually cut the lines? Oh, bastards. Now, I am pissed. They were in my house, eating my food, and now they've cut the phone lines? Well, they don't have a car, because I would have heard it fire up and drive off. Their asses are mine. As I storm out of the kitchen toward the front door, I leave a trail of dinner plates, silverware, and half-eaten food, and anything else on the counter strewn to the floor. The dull ringing in my ears has intensified a bit. I'm tired and groggy, but I don't care. I'm pissed. I open the front door so fast, I don't even feel the brass handle on my palm. It slams shut behind me, taking... Long, determined strides into my fog-covered front yard seems as the rain has let up. I start scanning for assholes and elbows, because I'm sure those fuckers are running away. I spend the next hour searching the yard along the tree line, but I don't find any sign of people. Wherever they were, they're long gone now, and damn it, I'm still tired as hell. I don't have time for this. As I head back to the house, I notice that the lights in the entryway are on. I cast a glowing image of that Amityville window above the doorway onto the stone slab porch in front yard. And the front door is open. I don't remember closing it, but I know I heard it slam shut behind me. I break into a full run and charge into the house, stirring up a vortex of wet, dead leaves in my wake. I notice that the ringing in my ears has increased in intensity, and I can hear the din of whispers over the tone in my head. As I storm onto the cold, slick floor of the entryway, I see three people. The first is clearly a priest of some sort. He's holding up a rosary with one hand and has a small, opened Bible in the other. The second person is a short, sad-looking woman with a floor-length coat pulled tight around her, its fur-lined trim and collar cinched closed with little wooden pegs. The third person is my daughter. I almost forgot I have a daughter. I, how could I forget her? I, I, she's beautiful. Standing there in front of me, I 
have a tremendous sense of loss, and I realize I miss her so much, but I can't figure out why. Did I just see her the other day? Oh, didn't I? Images of a beach, the warm, salty air on a windy day flash through my mind. My little girl's there, and we're flying a kite. I can hear the waves crashing onto the sugar sand shore, my daughter laughing as we run through the surf, flying a kite. It, it was a great day. She was so young and beautiful, and full of life. She's crying now, mouth covered by her hands as she scans the area of the entryway we're all standing in. She looks at me quickly, then her gaze moves on, searching, but for what? The sad little woman with a fur-trimmed coat, however, looks right at me. She has a grim look on her face as she pats the priest on the shoulder and shakes her head. The priest stops waving that stupid rosary around, goes silent, then moves to hold my daughter as if to console her. He's here, says the short woman. My daughter lets out a sob and the ringing in my ears gets loud. He's confused and angry. He doesn't understand yet. My daughter uncovers her mouth, her lips quiver. She squints her eyes as to hold back more tears. Can you hear me? What's he saying? She asked. The short woman shakes her head. It doesn't work like that. He can hear you, yes, but I don't hear what he says, just emotions, feelings. You can speak to him. My little girl, little no longer as I realize she's a full-grown woman now, wipes tears away from her eyes, sniffles and offers a smile. I sort of laugh because she must think she's looking at me, but instead she's looking just off to my left, but why wouldn't she be able to look right at me? I'm standing right in front of her. Dad, you can go now. gonna be okay. Mom and I love you and miss you so much, but you have to go. You'll be better off. My daughter laughs a little and smiles that smile I always love to see. Don't worry, I won't let Mom sell the house. I know you love it. The ringing in my ears is nearly deafening now, but I do not care. Why is she talking to me like this? Why... Does she want me to leave, and why is she not the ten-year-old girl from my memory? I realize I'm screaming these questions at her. The ringing has become full-bone pain in my head, but I don't care. I press my hands to my ears, trying to block out the noise, shake my head side to side, and continue screaming questions at my daughter. The short woman shakes her head again. She casts a sad look toward my daughter. He's angry. He's yelling at you. He, I, I can't hear the words, but he doesn't understand why you're saying these things. 
he's very confused. He doesn't know it's time to move on from this life. Wait. What did you just say? I stopped screaming and lowered my hands. The ringing in my ears is subsiding and instead begins a slow descent into a single harmonious tone. What does she mean that it's time to move on? My daughter smiles again. I've missed that so much. Daddy, we love you. It's time for you to move on. You can't keep scaring the hell out of Mom and I. We appreciate you staying with us to make sure we're okay, and we are, but you need to go. Behind my daughter, the kitchen doorway suddenly flares to life with the brightest light I've ever seen. Pure, clean, and inviting. That harmonious tone grows louder, not painful, but inviting. I look away into the three people standing before me. They don't see the light. It beckons me, so I begin to walk toward it. The short woman pats my daughter's hand and nods her head. Her smile tells me she knows what's happening, even if I don't. I move closer to the light and beams of white falling over me like loving arms pulling me into their embrace. The tunnel entrance is so close now, but I stop and turn to look at my daughter one last time. I mouth the words, I love you, knowing that no sound will come from my lips. The short woman whispers to my daughter. She sobs briefly and says, I love you too, Dad. I step into the tunnel and let the light take me. The tunnel isn't very long and the light near the end begins to shift I can smell warm, salty air and hear the crash of waves on a sugar sand shore. My little girl giggles. Small trigger warning before we get into tonight's second and final story. There is some depiction of self-harm on a kind of extreme level. Um, If that's something you're uncomfortable with, feel free to set this one out. There are tons of other stories that you can go and listen to on the channel right now. Just wanted to let everyone know, before we get into this, that there is some depiction of self-harm. So, like I said, if you want to set this one out, totally understandable. Take care, everyone. I'm not just some crazy girl. You'll believe me if you just take a moment and see the leech the way I saw it. I know you will. Just listen. It started when I was in Japan. I'd been living with a host family for a few months, and my semester abroad was almost over. I had the nerve to believe I'd begun to acclimate, that I understood their culture and could call myself one of them. On more than a few nights gathered around the fire, they told me their superstitions and scary stories. Their myths were very different from the ones I'd grown up with, and I found them fascinating, but not scary. They were too different. There was a heavy emphasis on 
choice. Rather than facing a mindless slasher that simply wanted to kill you, many Japanese horror stories involved entities approaching an unwary victim in a public place and giving them a choice. If the victim answered one way, they would be killed horribly in a specific manner. If the victim took the other choice, they would be killed horribly in another specific manner. These unwinnable situations made me laugh until the father of my host family explained to me in quiet tones the true subtext. It was all about the third option. It was all about the innate fear of customs in a very traditional society. The only way to survive was to simply know the acceptable third answer and give that one instead. He squeezed my arm and told me that I, as a foreigner, stood no chance of knowing the third answer. If I saw someone approaching me in public, no matter how innocent it seemed, I was to run away before they could speak and give me that fatal choice. I smiled and laughed it off, but his warning made me shiver a few times over my last few days. As a girl alone in another country, I was already on guard while walking through public spaces, but the towering maze of Tokyo took on a gray and tense tone whenever I thought of what might lurk among the crowds. I stuck to the paths that went through the many hidden gardens and parks, and I always looked around warily. That fear faded, though. I can't tell you why, not exactly. I was young. I thought I was smart, and I was American. Nothing could really hurt me. And besides, I was one of them now, right? I had spent months there, living like they did. So on my last day, when a woman began walking intently toward me from the opposite end of a long subway car, I stayed in my seat. She had long black hair, beautiful dark eyes, and a dark green dress that seemed out of place in a crowded car, otherwise filled with gray shirts, dark suits, and white blouses. I saw these details about her before I saw the deep scars on her face and hands, as if a maniacal American slasher had brutally carved her up and left her to die some years ago. As she shuffled toward me, the lights flickered once. The boy in the seat next to me shivered and focused worriedly on his portable game. Adults looked away, tense, and teenagers opposite me finally stopped talking and began staring at their shoes. They knew. They knew, and there was nothing any of them could or would do for me. I was a foreigner and a stranger to them. But they listened. <laughs> oh, did they listen. I could almost hear them straining their ears to hear the whispers over the keening wheels on rails beneath us. Every small step the woman took seemed louder than the one before. Even then I didn't believe it. I thought it was a prank or someone just being strange. 
I thought the others in the car with me were turning away out of courtesy or disgust at her scars. When I saw a tear fall from the cheek to the boy next to me, when I saw it splatter onto his game screen while he continued to pretend to play. That was when I understood. She stood directly above me, and I raised my eyes to meet hers. Her scars crinkled horribly as she gave me a seemingly innocent smile, and she asked in a pleasant but whispery voice, Do you have a sister? I froze. If I said yes, what would happen? But if I said no, what else would happen? When the lights flickered again and her face moved without moving right down close to mine, I almost panicked and told her the truth. Inches away from me, her smile widened. She turned her head slowly, horribly slowly, until her neck reached a 90-degree angle. On the verge of passing out from fright, I forced myself to start breathing again. Her smile turned into an angry frown. I cowered back against the person behind me who shrieked. The scarred woman in green began to reach for me, but car came to a smooth stop. The doors opened, and I dodged around her and ran out with the crowd. To their credits, none screamed. They simply hurried off to their various destinations while attempting to seem like nothing was wrong. Nobody wanted to draw attention to themselves. Nobody wanted to get noticed by the woman in green or by a polite society. I ran all the way to my host family's house, but nobody was home. It was my last day, and we'd already said our goodbyes, but it still felt odd that they were gone. Still trembling, I took a taxi to the airport, made my flight, and tried to rationalize the encounter away. The only hint I had that it ever even happened was a small cut on my upper arm where she nearly grabs me with her horribly long nails. A cut that had already strangely begun to heal into a scar. Hours into my international flight, I finally began to calm down, and I even started feeling a bit smug. Not only had I survived an encounter with a Japanese horror entity, I'd even managed to immediately take a flight straight the hell out of the entire country. I would not end up as another unwitting cautionary tale. I was a born and bred American girl that had seen every horror movie under the sun and I'd made all the right decisions. Awesome. I told the story to a guy sitting next to me on my flight and he asked, What if she shows up here on the plane? Where will you run? Yeah. I shut up right about then and stayed tense for the next few hours. Eventually, though, I realized I'd be doomed no matter what if the woman in the green dress showed up here, so I finally gave in and slept. Awake or asleep, it didn't matter. My neighboring guy woke me up before we landed, joked that he'd kept guard, and reported that nobody had come for me while I'd been out. Half-heartedly thanking him, I made polite conversation, left the plane, got my stuff, and met my parents outside the airport. It was bright, sunny, and open here, 
and it was a relief to be back home. This was the land of simple horrors, of gory violence, zombies, and haunted locations. The scarred woman in the green dress would have no power here, if indeed she'd existed at all. I was talkative and happy on the ride home, and my parents were glad to see me. I didn't tell them about my horrible encounter because it honestly slipped from my mind. Everything was good. I was safe. We pulled up to the house where I'd grown up, and it looked exactly like I'd remembered. Only a few months had gone by, true, but it felt like a lifetime. Lodging in my stuff alongside my dad, I began to recount some funny memory that had come to mind. When he entered the front door, turned toward the kitchen, and saw her standing there. Green dress, scars, smile and all, the woman from the subway car thousands of miles distant, stood waiting for me in my childhood home. She gave that same eerie smile and lifted a large knife. I screamed and dropped my bag, startled my father, dropped his too, and my mother rushed in from outside. The woman in green brought the knife down. She raised it and then brought it down again, chopping vegetables. Mistaking my reaction, my mother began screaming with me, but happily, and she pulled me forward. It's good to see your sister again, isn't it? Suddenly, I was forced into a hug with both my mom and the woman in green, but... Instead of trying to hurt me, the horrible stranger just... Smiled. It's good to see you, sis. I pulled away, trembling forcefully. I immediately sensed that, that something was off, and I'd seen enough movies to know how to keep my cards close to my chest. Mom, what is going on? What do you mean, honey? She asked, smiling happily at both of us before moving deeper into the kitchen to help cook. The scarred woman in green kept her gaze and neutral smile fixated on me as I moved away from her around the kitchen island and toward my mom. Why is she here? Who? Her. I returned the woman's stare. My mother laughed. <laughs> You've been away too long, dear. You remember that your sister's graduated and back from college now? I gulped. Humor me, Mom. Why doesn't she look like us? My father came down the stairs, returning from dropping off my bags, and gave me a black look. I thought we were past this. It's not nice to keep harping on your sister for being adopted. Horrified, I took a step back and bumped into the fridge. But... How? Oh... I guess I'm just super jet-lagged. Sorry, I was just trying to remember when that was. For a birthday present for her and all. My father sighed. <sighs> Same day you were born. He stepped out to get more bags from the car. 
I turned away, mortified. My sister never took her gaze off me, almost taunting me with her expressionless invasion. As we both stood there, facing off silently, she lifted her knife and brought it down on her own arm right along one of her scars. She didn't flinch. Instead, I did. Gripping my arm and looking down, I saw the skin slice, open, bleed, heal, and fade into a scar in moments. Aghast, I looked at her and saw the equivalent cut disappearing from her arm. Her smile grew a little wider. I opened my mouth to scream something with fury, but the scarred woman lifted a knife and pointed it at my mother's back. The implication was clear. The best I could do was to take the knife from her by offering to cook and insisting that my sister sit down at the table and relax. She did so, apparently willing to play a social game of cat and mouse. As I chopped up vegetables and stared at the scar on my arm, my thoughts raced. This entity had somehow attached itself to my life. Looking around at pictures in the kitchen, I saw her in photographs that I recognized. Family photos that now included her as a child, as a teenager, as a woman, scarred from the outset. I kept my eyes on her as she sat at the table, and she stared right back at me the entire time. Her disfigured smile never once changed. We actually sat down and had dinner as a family. My parents didn't seem to notice that my sister never spoke unless directly addressed, and even then only with perfect politeness. She ate a little and kept her eyes always on me. Halfway through dinner, I got angry and slammed my fist on the table. She took her dinner knife and drew it across her cheek. I fought hard not to scream as I felt my face split open, bleed, and then heal. I already knew there would be a scar, but I excused myself to go to the bathroom and look for myself. Once there, it occurred to me that the leech, a leech on my life, Time and soul seemed to be punishing me for rudeness. I remember saying to the mirror, All right, you bitch, I'll play your game. I just needed time to figure out. Another slice opened up near my ear, bled, and quickly healed over into a scar. She'd heard me from the dining room. Or she could hear me no matter what. Walking carefully back to the dining room, I put on my best graces and sat with a smile. I couldn't think about the scars. Were they permanent? Would I live the rest of my life disfigured? Plastic surgery might fix a few, but if this kept going... No. I would just have to be polite and proper until I could figure out how to destroy her. I volunteered to help clean up dinner and do the dishes, and my mother seemed surprised, saying that my time in Japan had done me good. I didn't know what she meant by that, but I managed to get through the evening without any further scars. 
That night, I tried to whisper to my father in the dark, but he didn't understand what I meant, and I earned another scar on my arm. I slipped downstairs and into her room. My sister sat holding a knife to her arm and grinning wider than I'd ever seen. What do you want? I asked her. She held a knife higher on her arm, just above a clear patch of skin where her scars had left her and been transferred to me. Do you have a sister? Suddenly remembering that moment of mortal threat in the subway car, I I said nothing. She did not cut herself, but she did wait, always staring, ever staring. I backed out and went to my own bedroom where I lay stressed for hours. I did sleep eventually, but only because jet lag forced me into it. The next few days were filled with terribly costly chess moves. I invited over old friends to see if they recognized her as my sister. And they did. For each of these conversations with confused friends, I earned another scar. The leech knew what I was trying to do, and she disapproved. The worst part was running into an ex-boyfriend and finding out that he didn't remember our relationship. After much pressure, he finally admitted... I liked your personality, but I didn't ask you out. Because of your scars. Sorry. I remember screaming and earning another scar for it. Rushing home, I looked at my old yearbook pictures. The scars weren't just appearing now, they were appearing back then, too. I'd always had them. That same ex-boyfriend would later remember asking out my sister instead. The leech was draining away my life right before my eyes. What would happen when she ran out of scars and I had them all? I couldn't talk to my parents. I couldn't talk to my friends. I shut myself in my room and spent each day alone to avoid any further social improprieties. I've been raised American, raised rude, proud, and free, and I kept making mistakes. It was in me to swear, to nettle, to tease, and the cost was just too high. My host family's father had been right. I was losing because I was from the wrong culture. Had I been a traditional and proper Japanese girl, the leech might have never punished me even once. The leech existed to punish deviants. The leech fed off outsiders, rebels, and bad children. The leech... The leech was part of me now. She only had a few scars when the idea came to me. She had this huge, asinine grin all the time now, and she stood in my room while I slept, staring at me, basically daring me to say something rude. She held a knife over me while I slept, yes, but it was not to cut me. It was to cut herself. And that's what gave me the idea. Furious and desperate beyond description, I decided that I wanted my life back at any cost, I've been thinking of the leech in two ways. 
I could avoid being rude and live under her threat for the rest of my life, or I could be myself and find out what punishment awaited once all the scars had been inflicted upon me. I feared that second option. I was terrified. When the leech became clear and beautiful and I became horrid and misshapen, what would she do to me? Would she kill me? Discard me when I stopped being useful? Would I cease to exist altogether? Would my life completely become hers? I'd been so afraid of that second option. It took me until she only had one scar left to remember what my benefactor had said. There was a third option, one unknowable to any but the most socially integrated, and I had enough time to see that. For the leech, the social game went both ways. We were not in Japan. We were in America. Here, victims got tough when the end was nigh. She was with me always then. She walked directly behind me, goading me, irritating me, pushing me with her silence and her grin. (laughs) That perfect smile on that beautiful face, it mocked me. I stood in the kitchen with her, and I drew out the same knife she'd been holding when I'd first come home, and found her attached to my life and timeline like the horrific leech that she was. I smiled at her matching her expression, and I brought the knife down before she could react. Not on her. On myself. I slashed open my arm, and blood splattered across the kitchen island. She gasped and pulled back, her hair hiding her face. I saw her clutch her arm, and I saw a scar appear in the equivalent place where I'd slashed myself. I wasn't healing, but I'd actually managed to injure her. I'd thought long and hard about it. Cutting her would only mean cutting myself, but cutting myself meant cutting her. I slashed again, this time on my face. She screamed. Finally, God, I'd longed, prayed to hear that noise from her. I slashed again on my leg, and she fell to her knees. My blood splattered across her green dress, soiling it, and I slashed myself again and again and again. I felt faint, and still I cut myself, turning my arms, legs, face, and tummy into an oozing mince meat and gobs of flesh. With each strike, she screamed louder and crumpled further. I fell to my knees before her, a wall of pain and ebbing gore, and I smiled at her as her scream reached a crescendo that soared into nothingness. With a last gasp, she shrank and blackened until she became nothing more than a grasping little animal, an actual leech. Without a person to latch on to, she was nothing but a worm. With the last of my strength, I stood up and stomped her. It was over. I called 911 after that, of course. And equally as expected, you think I'm crazy, but you have to listen. She was real, but she's gone now, and I'm not going to do this again. I killed her. 
I know I'll be scarred all over just like she was, but at least I'll get to live. I'll get to swear. I'll get to drink. I'll get to... (laughs) Remorse? For what? Why are you asking me that question? Find the guy on the plane. He'll tell you what I told him. There's no way he'd forget. (laughs) You're not hearing me. Find anyone who was on the subway that day in my car. They'll tell you. Why do you keep saying that? Stop asking me that question. She was a leech. She took everything that should have been mine. If she just never been adopted, it would have been my life. They would have been my friends, my boyfriends, my prom date. She was always there. Always in my goddamn house. Always so much better than me. Always mocking me with that beautiful face. I don't have a sister. Thank you.